Hey Brunch Buddies, welcome back for another episode of 28 Days Later. I'm your host Sophie, joined as always by my indescribable, gorgeous, stunning, almost inhumanly spectacular co-host and younger sister, so perfect it's like she forgot to unmute her microphone (laughs) there she is there i am every single fucking time guys don't believe it when people tell you that smoking weed doesn't affect your brain (laughs) (laughs) when you smoke weed at a young age you forget to unmute your shit on a podcast as an adult as an adult, you'll be so embarrassed when you can't remember basic math and forget to unmute your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hannah, how have you been since we last recorded? Um, I'm really good. or I've been really good. I did, um, you know, I've been doing these, like, what, bi-monthly? Is that right? If it's every other month? Or does yes. that mean twice a month? I think it can mean both. Um, okay, so I've been doing bi-monthly brunches, ladies' brunches. So I did that uh, this past weekend for the month of February. Um, although I will admit the crafting was not as on point as previously, just because with the, the given themes of the holidays beforehand, it was a little bit easier. This time I prepared some cakes for us to decorate, um, and people like definitely didn't get into it right away. Um, cause they were just kind of like, can I touch that cake? Am I allowed? Um, <laughs> and then like, of course, because <laughs> in the most like girls fashion ever, like a bunch of girls came over to my apartment and we drank like six bottles of champagne. But then at the end of the day and ate like a shit ton of food. And then at the end of the day, I had like four cakes. And when I was like, Hey, who wants to take these cakes? Everyone's like, Oh, actually like I can't, I can't take that cake. Cause like, Oh, I can't have cake around me cake yeah <laughs> and then i was like oh no don't leave me with a bunch of cake <laughs> yeah um but it was as always like it was great and i i just love like the energy and like the life force i feel like i get from those experiences although i did like start my period like literally that night so i don't know if that was related but <laughs> you immediately synced up with everyone. Yeah, like your uterus was like, like it's time. Basically, it was like the like the strong, powerful feminine energy was flowing so hard that it caused an instantaneous period. <laughs> <laughs> and I now love I'm it. perioding like a motherfucker. Um, so that's bringing me down a little bit. But mm. other than that, I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> I want to take a moment to just, uh, because I think you flagged this, and I want to take a moment to reiterate and I guess expand on what you said. I'm in the process right now of listening to a podcast, which I just recently um, promoted. So if you follow me on Instagram, you probably already saw me gush about this, but it's a podcast called Project Body Love that Women's Health Magazine did. Um, It is a 30-day program. The episodes are like five minutes long. Um, it is based in cognitive behavioral therapy and the whole idea is it's, it is targeted specifically at women, although I think it could function for just about anybody. Um, but the purpose is to sort of try to identify 
the really unhealthy patterns we have um, been taught societally about how we think about our bodies and food and dieting um, and then reframe all of those. And I have found it so incredibly meaningful and life-changing. Um, and so if Whoa. I could just say, it's okay to eat some cake sometimes. Like, <laughs> if you decorate a badass cake, take it home and eat it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I kind of feel like I'm sort of hypocritical in that sense because, like, I love baking um, so, so much. And, like, especially, a pro like, I used to bake cakes a while back. Initially, I got into it for you when you were gone um, in South Africa. I made you a cake when you for when you got home. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I haven't done that in a while, so it was like so fun to get back into it and sort of like remember why I loved it so much. But then, admittedly, I love baking, but I don't really like baked goods, and I love like pretty much all other sweets. Um, sure, but I just like have a hard time like getting into like cake and cupcakes and yeah. cookies, which is insane because that's, like, all that I make. But I um, think there's a, there's a difference between you don't eat it because you don't really like it and, like, I want this, but I feel like I'm not allowed to eat it. Yeah, of course. But I also yeah. feel like sometimes I feel awkward when it's, like, hi, everyone, I just who I just forced, like, four cakes onto. <sighs> I'm not going to eat any of these, but, like, you must take them. Sure. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. I get it. Yeah, so... Um, Sometimes it's a little awkward. I had the opposite experience. Um, so my partner's birthday was on Monday. And so his and our amazing friends um, decided as a surprise birthday gift for him and our other friend whose birthday was earlier in the week, um, they put together a Hot Ones challenge based on the YouTube series. So, no way! That is yes. so cool. Yes. Yeah, so way to Jeremy, bury the lead. Yeah, Jeremy like love, love, loves spicy foods and has a super high tolerance for spicy stuff. So, the weekend before this past weekend, we were um, hanging out with all of our friends in Kansas City and we watched. Um, they had never heard of Hot Ones, and so we watched one. And immediately after leaving that get-together, our friend Mark texted me and said, I want to do a Hot Ones for Jeremy and Matt for their birthdays. Like, will you help? Um, so our friend Mark and his wife, Kat, who are both amazing human beings, um, they um, put together interview questions for each of the guys to go through with all the hot sauces. They ordered the 10 hot sauces from season eight of hot ones and put them in no order. Way. Oh, Hannah, it gets so much better. So oh. then Kat got pictures of Jeremy and Matt from Matt's wife and I, um, like embarrassing pictures and made hot sauce labels for all of the sauces with pictures of them on them. Um, and then they made, my boyfriend's vegetarian, so they made him cauliflower, and they made Matt chicken wings, and then J uh, Mark ate chicken wings with them and interviewed them. Um, and it was, like, it was so much fun. But it's also funny because you had this, like, awesome girls brunch that I feel like was, like, lots of feminine energy, and there's nothing that, that says, like, I mean, there's lots of women who also like hot sauce, but there's something about just, like, three dudes being like, we're going to get really sweaty and eat really hot and spicy foods. Dude, um, I'm absolutely going to steal that for, like, my next friend's birthday. That sounds yeah. amazing. It was really fun. Um, if you need any tips, our friend Mark and Kat did, they did a phenomenal job. But so 
that was really great because the rest of us just got to get, like I just like drank a truly and watched um, everyone just like get sweaty and cough and get stressed out by the spicy foods, <laughs> which was super fun. Um, and other much less exciting news, I had the delightful experience today of going to a sports medicine doctor who told me that after the marathon, I probably have a stress fracture in my foot. So now this bitch is wearing a walking boot mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, feeling great about it. So, it's like, uh, you know, when people wear their workout clothes all day because they want to be like, I went to the gym today. What did <laughs> you do? So if he's like, I'm going to do a marathon and then walk around in a boot. So everyone knows. For a like, month. I'm active. Yeah. <laughs> Although while I'm wearing the boot, I'm not allowed. Obviously, I'm not allowed to run. I haven't been able to run since the marathon, so. Been, uh, it's been. I said to mom, and I feel like you're gonna. I can already feel you rolling your eyes, and you ha- don't even know what I'm gonna say. But like, I talked to our mom earlier, and I was telling her how it's hard because a week out from the marathon, my foot felt better, so I could at least like go on the stationary bike um, and do yoga and stuff. But my foot's gotten worse, so now I can't really do yoga or the bike, and. I was like, I'm in this weird in-between now where I can't be too active because it hurts my foot, but my body is used to being so active that not being active at all is making all my muscles, like, tight and sore. Um, So, like, I need to exercise, but I'm struggling to find ways to do that without hurting my foot. So, yeah, I know. That's all I'm so hard for you. Real, real, (laughs) real silly problems. Um, May I rec... uh, May I suggest... Kegels? (laughs) Kegels? <laughs> you say tomato, I say Kegels. Tomatoes, um, Kegels, tomatoes, Kegels. Potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I hope that all of you listening didn't think that we were going to let all of February go by without jumping into Women in Horror Month. Some of you may have been thinking, how do these two women who are so intelligent and well-spoken and really plugged into the horror genre, get all the way to the end of February without realizing that it's Women in Horror Month. And to you, I say, we've been so busy that we dropped the ball <laughs> um, and only <laughs> and decided... You, we say, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> we decided to do, like, a, a special wrap-up for Women in Horror Month. We will do a better job next year of covering... Um, female-centric horror films during the month of February, but February's been a whirlwind, and we've covered a lot of good stuff, um, so I regret know, nothing, Sophie, but... Don't make, don't make promises we can't necessarily keep. <laughs> All right. Well, here we are. As I said earlier, weed has definitely affected my brain. I may not even remember any of this by this time next year. Next February, we'll be recording our first episode of Women in Horror Month, and Hannah will be asking, Who are you? I'll be saying, Where am I? Has anyone seen my grandson? So, Hannah, I want to start really basic. I think that um, part of the reason that we started this podcast is because it's really easy to find podcasts or websites or articles or YouTube channels of men talking about their opinions of horror films. Um, I think we've discussed in a previous episode that um, Joe Bob Briggs' reaction to Black Christmas, I think, pointed a, shown a light on this uh, misconception and stereotype that ho- all horror fans are men and that women don't watch horror. Um, so I want to know how you got interested in horror 
um, as a woman and what your experience of being a horror fan has been like as a woman? Uh, it's funny because I guess I never really thought about it very much. I mean, I, I, I feel like one of the first, like, really formative things for me, just, like, in terms of, like, watching is that watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer when we were younger, I was, like, in, like, fifth grade when we started watching that, and, like, we started watching with our dad, because, like, he hadn't seen it, and he wanted to see it, um, and then, (coughs) excuse me, it was, like, we loved it, or at least I, I mean, I know you do, too, I loved it, and I really, like, got, like, hooked on it, back in the day, they used to play it from four to five and five to six on FX in the afternoon. And in the morning. Remember they would play it like while you're getting ready for school. I would watch it while I was getting dressed. So our dad would like tape it on the VCR for us too to like watch when we came home from school. So I feel like that's one of the first things that I really like was like wow I like this and I'm watching this because I choose it. Um, Instead of it just being like something I was watching because somebody else was watching it around me. Mm -hmm. Um and coincidentally, I mean, obviously that show, like, fits into the category. So I feel like that that kind of, like, led into just, like, a general interest and appreciation for the genre. And then um, definitely, like, you should take some credit for it because you were in the horror movie club at our high school. And when you graduated, I sort of, like, inherited that club from you, and I did that with my best friend in high school, um, where we would pick a horror movie and watch it during lunchtime, like, one day a week for, um, however many weeks to finish, like, one movie, um, but yeah, like, that definitely, I think, is what sort of started it off for me, and then as I got older and I had more of an interest in film and I went to college for film, like, I've always felt like horror is a really overlooked genre like it's sort of thought of as something like sort of cheap and gimmicky but it is one of the most like longest lasting and infallible genres because it's like no matter what happens people always want to get scared even if they don't want to admit it and always like if you're at a party like that's and you're all gonna like get high and put a movie on everyone's gonna want to watch a horror movie just because it's like (laughs) fun to watch with your friends Mm -hmm. um so i think like my interest in it and enjoyment of it combined with how much it's really stepped up its game over the last like 10 years um is probably sort of like what got me there I guess that's like what started it all um I don't know like about my experience watching it I guess I feel lucky to live in the time that we live with a lot of what's being made because I feel like starting out watching stuff um, some of, like, the more, some of older movies, I just felt like I was often, like, why is all the girls naked all the time, and all the girls dying all the time, um, and I feel like that's happening less and less, or when it is happening, we're getting some naked dudes dying in there, too, um, or it's being done, like, more thoughtfully, so, um, yeah, I guess, like, I guess I never really thought about it, um, but I guess that's my answer, so you're welcome. 
I think that's and a great answer. How about you? <laughs> um, yeah, so I I think our our journeys to horror are probably relatively similar. Um, I was a huge, huge, huge wimp uh, for much, if not all, of my childhood. Um, and I have a really weird <coughs> still <friend>. are. <laughs> I still am. I feel like um, my bio, my bio, in a charming in, way. <laughs> my bio in Grimm magazine is like I'm the wimpiest horror fan you've ever met. Like everything <laughs> scares me. Um, whenever people talk to me and say and learn I like horror films, they always say I don't know how you can watch that stuff. It just it scares me so bad. And I say, well, yeah, it scares the shit out of me too. I just I enjoy that. I guess. Um, yeah. So I have a I had a really dear friend in high school um, who was a huge horror fan. His name's Reed. Um, and so when we were freshmen in high school, we went to a Halloween party and Reed brought ha- 1978 Halloween, which we watched. Um, and it scared the ever living shit out of me. Um, and th- I I just feel like watching that movie flipped a switch in my brain where it scared me so bad um, and I hated it, but I also kind of enjoyed it. And so um, Reed and I and our other friend Nick started the horror club and we would watch horror movies during lunch. And I think that was a really good way to ease myself into horror because there's nothing that will take the tension out of a horror film, like watching it in 20 minute segments over the course mm-hmm. of like a couple of, a couple of days. In like um, a high school science lab. Yeah, during the day with a group of people. And so I feel like that made horror feel a lot more accessible. I watched a lot of movies in that context that people found really terrifying that just, like, did not scare me. And, again, I'm a huge wimp, but did not scare me because that's the context we were watching them in. Um, So I think that made a big difference. Um, I won't go super into this because it's a very long story, but I definitely – Um, have had experiences that have made me feel as a woman who enjoys horror kind of feel alienated within the genre fandom. So when I was in college, um, I did an independent study for a semester with a a professor about religion and horror film and sort of got to build my own syllabus and, um, and write a paper, which I was really proud of. And around that time, my, my friend, my same friend Reed who had introduced me to horror films and sort of gotten me into the genre in general had turned me on to a horror fiction podcast that we both really enjoyed and listened to a lot. Um, that podcast started to lean more and more heavily on stories that were very heavy into um, like depictions of sexual assault as a way to be edgy um, and just like seem darker. When like a lot of times it wasn't even relevant to the plot, it just like felt like they put it in mm-hmm. there to make their story feel uh, grittier, I guess. Um, and I reached out to the folks that ran the podcast to sort of say, you know, I've been listening to you all for years. I'm a huge fan. I love everything you do. I wonder if we could, um, just like put a trigger warning on these stories. You don't have to stop using them. If you could just like give me a heads up, I would skip them. Mm -hmm. Um, their response was to put a blanket trigger warning at the beginning of all of their episodes saying basically, um, we've gotten emails from some people who don't understand horror. And so we want you to know that this is a horror podcast and horror is supposed to be disturbing. And so if you can't handle that, don't listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that felt really shitty. I mean, um, especially because this was a podcast that like did use trigger warnings for lots of other topics. They just didn't yeah. do trigger warnings for like rape. Um, so 
it felt really shitty because I am a horror fan that came to the genre late and I'm someone who gets scared really easily. I was really susceptible to being told like, you don't belong in this group. We like, we don't want you because you don't get it. Yeah. Um, I have since then found a really great community in bloody good horror, um, which has really empowered me and made me just dig into my love of horror all the more. Um, and I think you and I have sort of grown in horror fandom together, which has been fun. And which is why this podcast exists. Um, so in the end, like this podcast exists to support my drinking habit. Also that (laughs) it's February again. And so Hannah's Hannah's back to boozing it up at brunch with us. But yeah, I'm just, I'm excited because I feel like, if it weren't for, I I don't think it's a good thing that I was treated that way, but I think that going through that led me to a, an environment and a family of fans that is like much more accepting and supportive, um, even when they don't agree with me, mm-hmm. um, and has really sort of empowered me in my fandom of the genre. So that I find all of that really exciting. Yeah, um, I personally having also like experienced. Or, like, watched your, you through that experience. Um, it's cool, too, because I feel like you went from being, like, oh, I, I like horror movies, too, to being, like, I really am passionate about this stuff, and I'm gonna speak about it Yeah. with my passion and, like, not be scared. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so... In this, in this beautiful month of February, we think it's important, um, because it is Women in Horror Month, to highlight some of the uh, female creators in the genre that we love. And, and I want to start off, like, really broad, Hannah, which is that when people think of female characters in horror movies, I think the first thing that often comes to mind, whether they are familiar with this language or not, is the idea of the final girl. Mm-hmm. Um, And so the final girl was an idea. um, The term was coined by Carol Clover, who wrote Men, Women, and Chainsaws. If you have not read it, you should. It's amazing. Um, And in the slasher genre, um, specifically, the final girl is our protagonist, usually a heroine, who is the one person that survives the slaughter. Um, So, Hannah, I wanted to just have a quick conversation about um, final girls that you like or are super partial to and or... Uh, issues you have with the trope because it is certainly not a trope that is without its problems. Um, yeah, well, I think it's it's interesting, especially it's something that in the last couple of years has come like more and more into question in a way or like been um, called out a lot more. Like, because mm-hmm. such a big part of it in the beginning was like it has to be like the virginal girl who makes it to the end. And then, like, thinking of movies like Cabin in the Woods, where um, they choose her and they make a joke at some point about how she's not a virgin, but, like, in this day and age, like, we got to work with what we've got. Right. Um, so, like, there's there's aspects of it that feel sort of, like, outdated, mm-hmm. I guess, um, but that they still kind of find ways to work around or incorporate into newer movies sure um but i mean that said i i like uh i think her name is dana from cabin in the woods mm-hmm. um and there's like that's such a good movie for it too because they, they talk about it so much and like yeah how 
at the at the scene where she's like getting sort of like beaten up for a while and they're all like partying and it's like in the background one of the guys like is this really necessary and he's like it's not for us like there's other people watching and he's like she has to suffer like that's the point um and often like the final girl in the movie is the one who's like just suffers the most because she just is like tormented the most or she just has to like be there and watch all of her friends die right um but I think a great movie uh, that handles it really well would be the really recent movie, The Final Final Girls. Yes, we both, we both love we that both movie. We both love that movie. I've watched it so many times since, too. Because it gives everybody sort of a little bit of a chance to be a final girl within the plot of that movie. Or, like, the bitchy girl doesn't have to just be the bitchy girl. Like, she can have more personality and more of a character basically like all the women in the movie get to be more than sort of like maybe an outdated horror movie trope um, yeah which is great um they're all allowed to be bigger than the stereotype their character might be in a different movie yeah exactly um or like i feel like so often the big one that comes up now is like the bitchy girl has a reason that she's a bitch Mm -hmm. Or, like, the final girl has a joke or a line or something being, like, making it clear, like, she's not a virgin, (laughs) since that used to be such a big part of it. Um, Although I did find it interesting, especially since you mentioned, like, Black Christmas, um, the fact that, like, uh, Riley was basically the the final girl in that movie, and Mm -hmm. so much of her character revolved around her character's experience having been raped. Yeah. Um, So it's interesting because it's like she's explicitly not a virgin because we know that she had been sexually assaulted. Um, Right. But it's really interesting that it's like in that case, it's like it was not her choice. Um, So I also thought that that was like, especially being a movie that was written by a woman, like that that was a really interesting way to play off of that trope to be like she's very like very much not like virginal and and all innocent um as the final girl usually is but more so because that was taken from her yeah well but that's an interesting thing because in so we talked about this in our black christmas episode but the final girl in the original black christmas jess is also not a virgin in fact she's right at the opening of the movie yeah pregnant Um, and getting an abortion yeah and so she is a, not a virgin, and B, has a lot of agency uh, around, like, her decisions about her body. Um, so I think both of those are interesting. Obviously, um, anyone that knows me at all knows that my one true love when it comes to Final Girls is Laurie Strode from Halloween. Um, and I really appreciate I think this is an interesting um, conversation that we're having about the tropes around Final Girls because... Um, our, our three sort of proto-slashers or, or original slashers um, are Black Christmas and the original Texas Chainsaw, who um, the final girl's name is Sally, and then we have um, Halloween. Mm-hmm. And um, Laurie Strode often sort of gets lifted up as the original, like, final girl in the way, in the sort of um, format that we're used to seeing a final girl in slasher movies. And, of course, Laurie Strode is sort of, like, a more bookish and quiet and shy um, girl. And it's definitely, 
um, implied that she's probably a virgin. Like, we get a lot of conversations around her relationships with dudes and her sort of reticence around um, yeah. flirting with, with guys. Um, John Carpenter, who I adore and have a lot of respect for, has always said that for him, um, it was not his intention to create a pattern where, like, Lori was able to survive because she was a prude. What he has always said is, like, it was his intention that because she wasn't distracted by, like, drinking and doing drugs and trying to have sex with her boyfriend, like, she was able to notice the weird stuff that was going on. Um, But, and so, like, I think there's, it's still worth having that conversation with Halloween. But I think especially in slashers that came after, especially in the Friday the 13th movies, where it's, like, very explicit that... um, the killer is going to go after teenagers who are breaking the rules. Like that is a really problematic and troubling trope. If nothing else, it's something that's worth discussing. Um, Mm -hmm. And sort of within that same vein, my other favorite um, final girl who I think steps outside of that particular trope in a way that is not super explicit. They don't have to like make a a comment or a joke about it is Sydney from scream um, Mm -hmm. Who loses her virginity immediately before discovering, spoiler alert for Scream, <laughs> that her boyfriend <laughs> is one of the killers. And so, like, um, she sort of, like, becomes the final girl in the same, like, there's this really great sequence where she basically, like, claims her sexuality because so much of her sexuality is tied up in the trauma of losing her mom and her mom sort of being a reputed, um, like, reputed in the town as, like, a quote-unquote slut. Like, Sydney is so afraid of becoming that that I think it's awesome that she is able to, like, reclaim her sexuality as her own, and then immediately after that is when she becomes the final girl in the yeah. in the, in the story, which I think is a really great way to sort of turn that, um, that trope on its head. Yeah, um... That's a good point. She's a really she's a really good one too because she's also one that I feel like often when you watch the movie you don't have the same feeling as much of where you're like, Why are you doing that? Yeah, Sid's really smart. She's like, really smart. She's a Although super you know, capable final girl. You know what I was just thinking of also that like when we were talking about that is like something that's funny is that we have a term for a horror movie where or for, like, the female lead in a horror movie, basically. Mm-hmm. But when there's a horror movie where the main character is a, a man, mm-hmm. like, what do we call that? We would probably just say, like, the hero. Well, I think if it's a slasher and the protagonist that survives to the end is a male, which happens very infrequently. Very, yeah, very. I think you just talk about it being a final girl who's a male. Like, remember in the movie Final Girls when there's that the blooper reel at the end and Thomas Middleditch is like, I've waited my entire life to be a final girl. Yeah. Like, I think there are conversations um, that happen or, like, articles I've read that if the survivor at the end of the slasher is a dude, um, the conversation is about, like, a movie where the final girl is a guy. Hmm. Um, And I actually, like... I'm going to regret this later, I'm sure. I'm struggling to think of a slasher where the person who survives at the end is a, is a man. Um, Devin Sawa in Final Destination, right? What? Doesn't he survive to the end? He does in the first movie, but would we call Final Destination a slasher movie? 
I feel, yeah, I feel like they get picked off one by one. Yeah, but you don't have, I mean, I guess you have, like, death as a force that is killing them. But that feels different than, like, a killer with a weapon going after mm-hmm. our protagonist. That's interesting. That's super interesting. This this is, like, this is a segue that we don't have to go down, but that reminds me of when I went to see It too in theaters with my coworker who um, is not a huge horror fan but has seen some horror movies, and we, we watched It Chapter 1 together at my apartment immediately before going to see the second one. Um, and she asked if I would classify it as a slasher. And my immediate answer was like, no. But then I was, she's like, but why not? And as I was trying to answer it, I was like, oh, well, all my answers don't really work. I, I still don't think on its face it is a sl- that it is a slasher. But I think it's interesting to sort of get, try to like untangle. Yeah. Because it, it there is a killer going after a group of friends, like, and yeah. picking them off one by one. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Um, now I'm also so, Hannah, what we decided to ones. do... Yeah, what we decided to do for our Women in Horror Month episode was we were each going to select a um, writer, a director, a performance, a character um, that we wanted to highlight. And I know when we framed this, we were talking about favorites, as I was trying to pick my people, I want to, like, move away from picking a favorite, if that's okay, and just say, like, these are people um, whose work I admire or who I want to draw people's attention to. Because some of the folks I picked, um, they only have one one project out. Um, so Everything it's hard. you say is final and can never be changed. <laughs> and when you pick a favorite, it's going to it's be forever. written in the annals of history. I have to tattoo it on my face. So we're going to start with writers. Um, For my writer that I want to highlight, and I'm sort of cheating because both my writer and my director write and direct. (laughs) So um, I really like both of them for both things, and I just sort of chose them based on... um, And from each person, I've only seen one film. So I sort of picked them based on which I like the directing more and which I like the writing more, although... To be clear, I think both of these movies are phenomenal um, in both categories. And so for writer, I selected Issa Lopez. Um, If you are not familiar with uh, Issa's work, she wrote and directed one of my favorite horror films of the last couple years, which is called Tigers Are Not Afraid. Um, It is a film shot in Mexico um, about areas of Mexico City that are being cleared out, sort of... um, emptied as cartels either disappear people and or people flee. And so the movie centers around a group of children who have been orphaned uh, because their parents have been murdered. And they are sort of living in this section of the city that's like a ghost town because everyone's gone. And they kind of get wrapped up in trying to run away from the cartel. And it's this really kind of, it's this beautiful and creepy and heartfelt and sad film. Uh, if you are a fan of Guillermo del Toro, it has mega del Toro vibes. It's Oh, cool. It's a movie that is doesn't feel like a horror film for most of it, <clears throat> but there's cool, creepy ghost stuff sort of, sort of woven throughout, like del Toro would do. Um, and Issa Lopez is currently working on an untitled project with Guillermo del Toro that is going to be a werewolf western, which I can't fucking wait for. 
Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and as everyone knows, I'm a massive fan of the podcast Switchblade Sisters. Issa Lopez was on an episode talking about Pan's Labyrinth and sort of talking about Guillermo del Toro's influence on her work. So if you're interested in hearing more about her, check that out because it's great. And if you have not seen Tigers Are Not Afraid, it is streaming for free on Shudder and I'm sure is available to rent at other places. You will not regret it. It is one of the most beautiful horror films I've seen in the last five years. It's stunning. I'm just going to say that at this point, I sometimes feel like you maybe just started this podcast with me so that you could promote Switchblade Sisters. I know. I feel like I shouldn't talk about it so much, but it's so freaking good. It's just, it's (laughs) really great. It's really great. Okay, so for my choice, I'm going back to one of our earliest episodes, um, and I'm choosing Rita Mae Brown. Because she wrote Slumber Party Massacre. Solid And choice. I really loved that movie. Like, I had so much fun watching that movie. Um, and there's definitely parts of it that were still, like, pretty exploitive. Um, but it, I just remember, like, when we were doing it and when we were reading about it. And both the women who wrote and the woman who directed it kind of being, like, a little bit, like, they wanted to do it in a different way, um, but that they also were having to play by certain rules, and they also were kind of just trying to make, like, an exploitive film, but done by a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those things together, I think, make that movie, like, how awesome, it, like, how amazing as it is, but also, like, led that movie into making, like, a pretty, like, um memorable mark in like horror history and kind of like how that led into other women's experience writing and directing it as well definitely that's an awesome choice I'm really glad that you picked her and Um, I feel like especially since we were talking about like um, newer movies like subverting the tropes like that movie did a lot of that stuff like way back in the day like Mm -hmm. the guys like screaming while the girl's watching a movie and she's like turning the movie up um and uh like the girl eating the pizza off the dead guy's back yeah <laughs> like there was some real um i think ahead of their time moments in that movie definitely Um, So let's jump on to directors. Uh, The director that I chose, like I said, I sort of cheated because both my writer and director are people who wrote and directed their feature, their their feature debut film. Um, So I would pick both of these people for either category. But my director is Coralie Fargiat. She is the woman who wrote and directed the film Revenge, which came out a couple of years ago. If you are unfamiliar, Revenge is a sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. It is a really tense, adrenaline-filled subversion of the rape-revenge trope. Uh, I I wouldn't even say subversion, necessarily. It is a take on that subgenre that is written and directed by a woman. And so there are just really... The reason I picked it for directing specifically is that the decisions that uh, Coralie Fargiat makes as far as the way that the protagonist is filmed at different points in the movie and the perspective from which she is shot and the way she is costumed and the use of color, everything is stunning. 
And I think she makes a great choice. We've talked a lot on this podcast about films that feature sexual assault and how a director chooses to handle that topic. I think there are directors who, for reasons that are perfectly valid, choose to really um, sort of sit with and show the trauma. And I understand the utility of that. I personally have a really hard time watching it. And I think that Revenge does a really good job of sort of kind of cutting right down the middle of the two approaches uh, in a way that is real, both gut-wrenching without feeling exploitative or or like you wouldn't be able to watch it. Um, and I just found this movie phenomenal. The, the other thing that I want to say that is such a great choice is that the final showdown in this film that happens between the female protagonist and her boyfriend, who's not the one who assaulted her, but he's sort of like... Found, once he found out that it had happened, he just kind of blew it off and didn't do anything. Uh, their final showdown is he he is in the shower when she confronts him, so he is running around naked. And it's just this really cool subversion of the, the power dynamic where he is, she's the one who has the weapon and he is more vulnerable because he's unarmed and he's naked and is caught off guard. And it's just a really amazing movie. I struggle to think of many other movies I've seen in the last five years, especially within the horror genre. And that's saying a lot because there's been a lot of good horror that have really um, impacted me in the way this movie did. And so I cannot wait to see what else this director does. Well, I super respect um, your choice and your passion. But it's also a little bit of a bummer for me because you told me with that movie that I... Should I probably have to skip that movie? We should revisit that. I feel so, like you might be able to watch it if you were like if you were adequately prepared because the the assault sequence is like short and it's not it's hard to explain without giving it away. But they sort yeah. of like are shooting she is being a, she's like in the house so you can like kind of see from outside the window, but it's not like right up in her face and it's very short mm-hmm. I guess if that makes yeah. sense it really I mean, focuses you... more on the tension before it happens than the, the yeah the um assault. I mean the way you spoke about it right now was like very powerful and I was like oh I I'm like drawn to it but also I also really struggle with that so I'm not sure yeah. if I could handle it um I pretty much have I've mostly steered pretty clear of like all Rape revenge movies, just because it's like really hard. Um, yeah, I think that is that. also a totally fair assessment. Um, so my choice, uh, also writer director, although I'm kind of surprised. Like when I was looking, like revisiting it, she hasn't really done anything in a while, and I'm a little disappointed because I'm like, girl, get on it. I love this movie. Although I've watched this movie so many times, like it's okay because I just every time I meet a new person I'm like have you seen this movie if not let's watch it together um, but so my choice is Lee uh, Janiac yes Janiac Janiac um, who uh, co-wrote and directed Honeymoon mm-hmm. which talking about horror movies that and like our experience watching them mm-hmm. that movie to me is one that really sticks out to me just because 
Number one, I think it's a great movie. Number two, I think it builds tension really well and really, um, I mean, it's like so, everything is very small. Like it's a small cast, it's not a lot of locations, but it is so captivating and it's like so tense. I love that movie for all those reasons. But also, one of the main reasons that I love that movie is the sex scenes in that movie mm-hmm. are amazing. Like, and that's like part of what makes it such a good movie is like the couple when we're first meeting them. It's written and directed really, really well so that you really feel connected to them as a couple and like you know them as a couple. Yeah. Um, the sex scenes are a lot more realistic to the female experience um and like by that i mean there's a lot of finger banging and foreplay in these Uh sex scenes which i appreciate because like you don't see that as much like on tv and that's why like every time i start dating a new guy i have to teach them that finger banging is an important part of sex um so i like that this movie like you can tell it's directed by a woman and that those things were thought through from the mind of a woman. Um, But it also works even better because then it's like the turn in the movie of when the couple is so estranged and so distant from each other and so not intimate anymore because they were so well portrayed as being like really intimate and connected mm-hmm. you feel it even more as they pull 100%. farther and farther away from each other um, and man I fucking love that movie I wish you would do another one yeah I, I feel the same way that is a movie that I feel equally uh, in love with I feel like I have also rewatched it several times and I recommend it to people all the time that is a movie that uh, Jeremy discovered sort of, he, I remember him reading a review about it and being like, oh, maybe we should watch this. And he fell asleep right at the end. And if you've <laughs> seen this movie, you know there is a, the last shot of this movie scared the bejesus out of me. And I just remember, like, that shot happens. And I roll over and Jeremy's asleep and I'm just, like, alone in the dark. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, no. Well, Oh, it's such a phenomenal movie. And I think, like, um, I don't know, it's hard because I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to spoil it necessarily, but... We should definitely cover Honeymoon. It's so good. Because there's a scene, as things are going downhill, <laughs> where the where the husband is having to, like... He has to tie his wife up and confront her. And I think that that could very easily come off it could sort of go south very easily if it wasn't done in a good way um or like in a careful way like i just think like the the visual of like seeing a woman tied up with a man can Uh like spook you out and so i think like the way that everything that happens after that and around that the way it is directed is very careful because it's like we're still supposed to be we're still mostly aligned with the man in that situation. Um, and I think that 
that whole thing is very artfully crafted so that he never comes off like scare like he's the scary one as much or like I mean it's so hard to talk about it without like spoiling it but you know, know. what I'm talking about yeah. yes yes there's like some stuff that happens and um we'll talk about that later so stay tuned <laughs> when when we cover honeymoon um no that's amazing and I that leads us perfectly into uh, me feeling like you kind of cribbed my choice, which is we're going into performance now, and I was going to pick Rose Leslie in Honeymoon as B. Oh, um, damn. I feel for all the... And I feel like I can just like cover it really quickly because of all the things that you've said. I think that film is so well-directed, but also so phenomenally well-acted, and there is something deeply, deeply troubling about the way and it's because of Rose Leslie Rose Leslie's performance there's something so terrifying about watching her kind of spiral um and i think her performance that character played by a less capable actor could have come off as sort of silly or feeling unrealistic and she's able yeah. to work with she's able to work with this script that it's not a bad script at all it's a great script but she's able to work with these lines and, and sort of spiral in this way that's really scary, that feels, we both, we are able to both feel like we are going through it with her and we're going through it with her husband. And it's this really amazing movie. And so I was scrambling to try to pick a different performance once you said uh, Lee Janiac for Honeymoon, but I'm just going to double down. We're going to have to cover Honeymoon because it's so good. All I want to say now is something happened to me. Something happened to me. In the woods. <laughs> and I was going to say, along those lines, since I already know who you're going to pick for performance. Yes. Uh, which who's your also performance, a, Hannah? I'll debut it with her line, which is, what is it? There's something, there's something in the woods. And I think it's in here with us. Now. <laughs> Which is the scariest line delivery. Jeremy still says that to me when we're like laying in bed at night to scare me. Because that's that that scene alone, even with no context, is terrifying. Terrifying. So I am of course talking about Jane Levy in um the remake of Evil Dead, which I fucking love. We both so love. much. Yes, we both love. We both love. Um, damn, yeah, that movie to me is oh, so good. It's such a great example of how you're going to do a remake. But yeah, her performance, too, like, she has to do so many different things in that movie. Mm-hmm. And she does all of them extremely, like, exquisitely. Like, very, everything's believable. Everything you feel for her. She has to sometimes snap from being, like, vulnerable to being terrifying or, like, that movie plays a lot on this idea that, like, they're all in the cabin because she's trying to come off of drugs. Right. And she's the first person to notice that something is wrong. But no one believes her because of, like, her past, and everyone thinks that she's just trying to, like, make excuses so that she can get out of the cabin and get back to the drugs. I guess. Yeah, right. I mean, they, they think they all think she's just desperate to get another dose, and so they don't really believe yeah, her. Yeah, and so at that at times, like, in the beginning of that movie, she is sort of, like, 
a villain, be, like because we're following Ash more so, and we're following like his journey and seeing how like he's struggling with what to do. But I think she's like the MVP of that movie because she ends up carrying like so much of the progression of the story, so much of like of it is literally shown in how her character and her performance changes. Um, and especially at the end, when in that final chase scene, that like I still can't watch that chase scene, even though like I know every time yeah. it's gonna be fine. It like freaks me the fuck out every time. Same, same. She she does it all so well, especially being terrified. Um, but I think that that was also so good because, especially when you consider like, in comparison, like her character in the original, is. It's not that she's like a like a a bad character, but she's just not as like she's not as much the focus and she's not as um fleshed out. So 100%. I th- think it's really cool that when they did the remake, they made it so much more they sort of tricked you and made it so much more about her um yeah. than about Ash exactly. And I think that's a she's a great example, a great person to pick for the performance because what she had done before this movie was like primetime family television, right? Like, yeah, she didn't. She was not coming from Suburgatory, a which I did watch on ABC, right? So I think that <laughs> makes it all the more impressive that this performance is so like such a home run because it's it seems like it would be very outside of her wheelhouse. Um, our last category is our favorite characters or characters that we are very fond of in horror. Female characters were. We're getting rid of the favorite label because I just feel like there's too many phenomenal ones to pick from. And since I gave my shout out early earlier on to Laurie Strode, who we all know I love, I definitely have to go with Jay here from It Follows. I think when people ask me, you know, to pick a favorite horror film of the last decade, It Follows always comes out, number one. I just found this movie to be visually really cool it pays such phenomenal homage to john carpenter and other movies from the 70s and 80s and we get this really awesome protagonist in jay who is this young woman who is sort of uh transitioning from being a teenager into being an adult but she's still Mm -hmm. living at home and her younger sister's in high school so she is trying to branch out and be an adult but she's very much still in this sort of childhood space. She's very much existing in this liminal space between the two points of her life. And this movie, talk about subverting the tropes around a final girl. This whole movie is about a a curse mm-hmm. or a ghost that is transmitted through sex. So yeah. the scary stuff doesn't, doesn't happen until Jay has sex. And as far as we know, this is not her first time having sex. But this movie does a great job of sort of subverting a lot of the puritanical kind of tropes around sex and horror films. And I find Jay to be a character who feels really real in the way that she reacts to this stuff. Mm -hmm. Where, uh, you know, if you have not seen It Follows, after she has sex with this guy, she just starts seeing this entity that can look like anyone that's always slowly walking towards you. And we sort of get to experience with her the disbelief and then the sort of feeling like this can't be real, but it is happening. And then finally figuring, okay, this is real and I need to figure out a solution to this to this problem. And I love going on the journey with her. 
I love how well-rounded and well-written her character is. I just find her to be an incredibly relatable protagonist who I love. And it was the first movie I saw Micah Monroe in. Mm-hmm. And she's another another person. When we talk about folks we want to see more from, Micah Monroe is a person that I just want to see so much more from. Uh, she is great. Oh, she's and amazing I think in everything she's in. She's, she, I mean, she's even good in the new Independence Day, which was a terrible movie. Terrible movie. Um, so, yeah, just more Micah Monroe and more It Follows. That's a really good choice. And it's funny that you were going to go with Laurie Strode. And that's a movie that's heavily influenced by Halloween. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go a little off base here because I was going to say um, Sydney from Scream. Cause, but uh-huh. we did kind of already talk about her. But just because she is one that you can actually watch and be like, oh, my God. Yes. Like you're you're actually making logical choices. Yeah, um, she's making good choices, but she's not infallible. I feel like you have, she yeah. still does dumb things. Like, she has that famous line in the first film where she says how she doesn't like horror movies because it's always women with big boobs running up the stairs when they should go out the front door. And then the first time she encounters Ghostface, she runs up the stairs. Yeah. So she it feels relatable because I think the, the other side of the coin is you have um, the protagonist in your next who is super competent. But there has to be a backstory, right, for why she's oh, super competent. Yeah. So Sid is competent in a way that feels like it feels relatable. Like you could, you might make mistakes, but you could also come up with the kind of stuff that Sid does. That would have been a great choice, too. I love her character. She's great. I, where's next. that actress been? I want to see her in more. She was awesome in that movie. She's so good in that movie. Um, but I want to choose someone who's actually not a final girl. Just because I love her. <laughs> You don't have to pick a character that's a final girl. It's just a character in horror that you love. I love Sarah Michelle Gellar in I Know You Did Last Summer. To me, it is just so classic. And, like, everything about that movie is so quintessential. Slasher for that time. Mm -hmm. She is a bitchy, blonde, beauty queen, best friend. But... She's also Sarah Michelle Gellar, so she also, like, brings a lot of, like, heart to the character and, like, makes you really feel for her, um, especially, like, in when we, like, rejoin the characters later on and we're kind of, like, jumping back into her and Ryan Felipe's love story and how they kind of mend fences um, and then before shit goes south or kind of while shit's going south. But I just, like, I think, like, to me, um, probably also because that movie was one of the first horror movies I watched as a kid because it was on ABC Family's 13 Nights of Halloween. And it was, like, heavily edited for TV, obviously. Um, But I think, like, for me, a lot of times if I think a lot about my experience in horror or viewing horror as a woman, like, I just think of her with the crown of seashells and, like, that green, like, satin dress running through the street, which is just, like, running through the street in high heels. Yep. It's just classic, 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 and I fucking love it. Yeah, she's amazing. I thought you were going to say Sarah Michelle Gellar in Scream, which is another (laughs) cameo in a teen slasher where I think she imbues her Sarah Michelle Gellerness into a character that's even smaller, you know, this tiny little cameo in Scream 2. But 
um, rest in peace. I think her name's Courtney in that movie. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to give a shout out. This was not a category we were going to do, but I think because we're both fans of the genre, I wanted to take a moment to and shout you're an out. Overachiever. <laughs> well, no, but like we <laughs> would be remiss to do an episode on <clears throat> women in horror and not talk about Deborah Hill. Yes. Um, so for those of you that don't know, I can't imagine that's very many people, but for those of you that don't know, I feel like Deborah Hill is the unsung hero of Women in Horror Month. Uh, Deborah Hill passed away in 2005. Uh, she was pretty young, and but during her career, she produced 30-plus um, films and TV shows and TV episodes, including, but not limited to, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York. She was the producer on a lot of John Carpenter's stuff. So if you are a person who's watched Halloween... And you appreciate the dialogue that happens between Lori and her friends, Linda and Annie, and you think, wow, that feels like me and my girlfriend's talking. You can thank Deborah Hill for that. Deborah Hill wrote that dialogue. Mm-hmm. I feel like Deborah Hill is a huge reason why Halloween is one of my favorite movies and didn't, you know, didn't become this sort of exploitative thing. And I don't say that to disrespect John Carpenter or anyone else involved in that movie, but I think she... Uh, throughout her career was someone who worked on these big blockbuster movies. Uh, and I guess, I mean, obviously Halloween was not a blockbuster at the time. Um, these were all independent films. But she she worked on these movies that are super influential, I guess is a better way to say it, in our lexicon of film. And I think it does not get nearly enough credit. I think if you encounter people who are into horror, especially women who are into horror, they will probably know Deborah Hill's name. But I think if you ask your average film fan who maybe isn't super into horror, they will know John Carpenter, but not Deborah Hill. And that's just that's just wrong. Mm. Uh, and shout out to my amazing friends who, for I think my birthday this year, bought me a T-shirt that says a Deborah Hill production in the Halloween font, awesome. which is just the, it's the it's the best thing. So. Um, huge, huge thanks to Deborah Hill because I feel like she really did a lot of work to pave the way for a lot of the women that we talked about in this episode. Yeah, girl. Um, I wanted to give one more quick thing. This was not something we discussed up front, but, uh, Hannah jokes that I always give too much love and free advertising to Switchblade Sisters, but since we're doing an episode about women in horror, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to our podcast and you want more stuff like this, if you don't listen to Switchblade Sisters, you should. If you don't listen to Faculty of Horror, you should. If you don't listen to She Kills, you should. And if you are not a person who has ever subscribed to or bought an episode or an edition of the magazine Grimm, you should also do that. I think if you're a listener of this podcast, you probably agree that uh, horror criticism could use more uh, female voices, just like horror films could use more female creators and actors. So support the women in this industry because it can feel like a boys club sometimes. And it's important to remind the women who are fans that their voice matters. And it's important to create space for people like Hannah and I when we were younger who didn't feel like we were really, we really fit. Especially I guess I should speak to my own experience. Like, create spaces for people like me who didn't feel yeah, like bitch, fit don't in, talk the, for me. in the fandom when I was coming up. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have anything else you want to add about women in horror? Um, no, just that like, I guess the experience of trying to pick people for this was 
sort of staggering because it's like a it really point out to me how many movies I don't immediate like I don't immediately think of movies mm-hmm. when I'm trying to pick a female director or writer, um, and that's kind of a bummer. Um, and then looking at it and being like, oh yes, of course her, and then I'm like, oh dang, she hasn't done anything since like 2014, like. Um, it's a interesting experience because I feel like we're, we've got a lot of good options and a lot of great content right now, um, but I still want more, and I just want it to be more, like, obvious and more, e- like, easier. I want it to be more easier. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I just want there to be a bigger space for yeah. for women. A hundred percent. I had a very similar thought when I was editing our Birds of Prey episode because I was listening to us talk about um, specifically superhero films with female protagonists. And the fact that you can just, you know, we were talking about Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman, and the Ghostbusters uh, remake from 2016. The fact that you can rattle off those three movies plus Birds of Prey, if I had said to someone oh, you're covering the new Thor movie. Like, what do you think of male-led superhero films? Yeah. You know what I mean? You wouldn't say, oh, here's the four that that exist. Mm-hmm. So, I, like you're saying, the fact that, um, that the pool is so small or that we don't know um, and aren't paying attention to sort of the creators that are bringing us the really good stuff means that uh, we should all do a better job, myself included, of being aware of where our movies are coming from and trying to support these these female creators because we know it's hard um, for women to get their voice heard. We've talked about it in a lot of our episodes uh, because it's been the experience of some of our directors and actors and writers we've talked about. So let's keep making space for women and keep spending your money at the box office and at the movie um, store to show people that like you have at the movie store. Okay, grandma, let it go. So that people know that there's an appetite for these, for these creators and that there's an audience for them. I mean, after we talked about birds of prey, I texted like five of my closest female friends. I was like, you need to go see this in the theater. Yeah. Cause I'm just like, guys. And it was so funny because like all my friends that I said that to were like, we're like, oh, really? I didn't like Suicide Squad. And I'm like, the good news is, is it's all different people. <laughs> I, was like, I, I was like, I didn't even see Suicide Squad, and I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't want to watch it, like, you know, watching Suicide Squad with, like, dog poop on my shoe <laughs> is up there with, like, terrible experiences I could have. Um right. But I was like, this movie is so good, and it's just, like, so female-run. Like, I just want this movie to be more successful because I need for more movies like this to be made. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so we're going to jump into our In Ladier News for this week, and I want to give a quick heads up that our In Ladier News is on the darker side and I want to give a content warning for domestic and intimate partner violence Um, so if you want to skip ahead a couple seconds you can but I thought the story was important to talk about so 
Last week, um, an Australian woman named Hannah Clark and her three children were murdered by her estranged husband, Rowan Baxter, who was a famous uh, retired rugby player. And the reason that this uh, story came across my, uh, or got my attention on Twitter, I guess, is there were a ton of people tweeting about the way this story was being covered. So Hannah and her estranged husband had been separated and she was trying to um, initiate proceedings to end their marriage and and get away from him. He um, ambushed Mm. she and the children when she was putting them in the car. He lit the car on fire with his three children and and the mother in the car. When people tried to put the fire out, he stopped them and then he jumped in the car and stabbed himself committing suicide. The way this story was covered, let me read you some of the headlines. Rowan Baxter, outcry after family of ex-rugby player die in a fire. Mm. Mother dies in hospital after car fire kills three children and father. Ex-NRL player Rowan Baxter dies alongside his three children and estranged wife in a Brisbane car fire. So, yeah. So there was understandably a huge outcry about the fact that none of the, all of these headlines are covering it as though this was some kind of freak accident. Yeah. I mean, he murdered his family. He murdered his fucking family. Um, And people were posting headlines that had, like, pictures of the whole family together, like, smiling and stuff, Mm. where it's just, like, that is really toxic and and not okay. Um, And I saw one, uh, one tweet said, the way that we report on crime matters. Um... And it posted a headline and said, this article takes five paragraphs before it is alleged that the man that set the car on fire uh, did so in an act of family violence. This was not a car fire. It was a horrific crime. Um, mm-hmm. There is a follow-up article. So the, the children all died in the fire. The, mo- the mother survived long enough to get to the hospital, but passed away shortly after being hospitalized. Um, there's a really beautiful article that speaks about Um, When she was brought into the hospital, she had burns on 97% of her body um, Mm. and was barely able to remain conscious, but fought very hard to stay conscious as long as she could to make sure that she could tell authorities and doctors what happened to her children. Mm. Um, So I just want to take a moment to remind all of us that like there is a reason why people talk about the way that headlines are written. There's a reason why people care about this stuff. Um, It really matters that like this woman and her kids were victims of a horrible crime. And um, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, this is a tragic thing that happened. It sounds like she was a really loving mother um, and we all need to do better with how we talk about these kind of issues. Mm -hmm. It comes up like we're recording this episode the week that um, Harvey Weinstein was convicted of, two felony sex crimes and he's still being referred to in headlines as a disgraced producer, not like a convicted rapist, which he is. Um, Yeah. I think it's really important that we recognize that there is a pattern, um, especially when the perpetrator of crime is a powerful man, especially if he's white, but not always. And the victim is Mm -hmm. a woman or a marginalized person the way that just the words we use really let people off the hook, and that's really not fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Mm. Can't say it enough, guys. Listen to Chasing Cosby. (laughs) Hear those women, hear those women tell their stories because, you know, in a way, they just really didn't get to for the most part. Like, we still just don't think of, we don't know their names. Right. Right. So, we know this episode has been a real roller coaster of emotion. We covered a lot of stuff that makes us really happy, and we covered a lot of stuff that makes us really sad. And so, please remember to take care of yourself and the people that you love this week. Um, just like you're being at brunch with friends, imagine that we're all leaving brunch now and giving each other big old hugs, and we'll see you back here next week. Clink, clink! <laughs>